Welcome back to the Rules Plus podcast. In the last episode, I opened discussion of the 10th of 15 sibling rules dyads, forward pass versus backward pass. I have referred to my discussions of pairs of rules separated at birth as the Sibling Rules Project, which is part of a comprehensive ongoing Neighbors Project to create a mind map to understand the neighborhoods where aligned rules live. Our goal in studying NCAA football rules should be to resist approaching rules as if they are silos and instead consider the ripple effects that rules have on each other. To review for more recent listeners to this podcast, the 15 pairs, or dyads as I refer to them, of rules I regard as siblings separated at birth are these. Kicker versus passer, illegal pass versus intentional grounding, free kick versus scrimmage kick, field goal versus try, field goal versus punt, kick crosses the neutral zone versus a pass that crosses the neutral zone, Post-TD kickoff versus post-safety free kick. Fumble versus muff. Illegal kick versus illegal kicking. Forward pass versus backward pass. False start versus stemming. Illegal touch versus illegal touching. Personal foul versus unsportsmanlike conduct. Regulation time versus overtime. And touchback versus safety. Last week's discussion of the forward pass versus backward pass dyad was structured by considering each of nine elements as a basis for comparison and contrast. The elements, one, definition, two, when a pass ends, three, when a loose ball becomes dead, four, classification of type of play, five, eligibility to touch the ball, six, when touching becomes illegal, seven, the impact of touching the ball, eight, potential fouls, and nine, the impact on the game clock. I covered the first four of these elements last week. This week, I'll conclude the discussion with coverage of the remaining five elements. Comparison elements five and six, initial and ultimate eligibility to touch the ball. To be clear, I should briefly summarize what we learned last week about the definitions of backward and forward pass, which you can find conveniently grouped in Rule 2, Section 19. The act of passing is defined very simply and intuitively as, quote, passing the ball is throwing it, end quote. A pass is forward if it first strikes the ground, a player, an official, or anything else beyond the release point. Otherwise, a pass is backward. The explicit when in question guideline provides that the default ruling should be that a throw is a forward pass. There is also clarification that if the ball becomes loose during any backward motion during the snap, that is a backward pass. So if passing means throwing, it seems that the act of passing is an intentional act, 
just like the acts of kicking and batting. Yet, in view of the provision that a ball that's loose from a botched snap is a backward pass, one important difference between backward and forward passes becomes clear. A backward pass is usually intentional, but it may be unintentional, while a forward pass is always an intentional act. This difference may be relevant in determining whether a loose ball is forward or backward and whether a loose ball is a pass or a fumble. This difference has significance for eligibility to catch or recover a backward or forward pass. Rule 722 provides that any inbounds player may catch or recover a backward pass or a fumble, and the ball continues in play. It's important to note that a backward pass is regarded in the same way as a fumble is. So whether intentional or not, a backward pass is fair game for any player, regardless of which team he plays for, which uniform number he wears, or which position he assumed in the offensive and defensive formations at the snap. However, it's also important to note one critical exception to regarding backward passes and fumbles as alike. Explicit exception number two in the Rule 722 comprises the so-called fourth down fumble rule that says a fumble becomes dead if, before a change of possession, a teammate of the fumbler catches or recovers the ball. A backward pass, to the contrary, continues in play in such circumstances. Turning our attention to forward passes, the intentionality factor also has significance for eligibility to catch or recover the ball based on whether it's a fumble or a pass. Rule 733 provides that only certain players may touch or catch a pass. All Team B players, and of course, Team A players who are in the backfield or on the end of the line, and who wear numbers other than 50 through 79. Eligibility to touch or catch the ball is lost permanently once a player goes out of bounds, but once a forward pass is touched by a Team B player or an official, all eligibility restrictions go away. So regarding eligibility, there are two major differences between backward and forward passes. One, there are no restrictions on eligibility to touch, catch, or recover a backward pass, but there are considerable restrictions on Team A to touch or catch a forward pass. Two, it is possible to recover a backward pass, but not a forward pass. Comparison element seven, the impact of touching the ball. The factor of intentionality is relevant to the consequences of touching a ball that is loose from a backward pass or fumble. Consider first backward passes. While there are no restrictions on eligibility to touch, catch, or recover a backward pass, there are two important restrictions on intentional acts involving contact with the ball, batting and kicking. Recall that batting is an intentional striking of a ball or intentional changing of its direction with the hand or arms. That's in Rule 211.3. 
it is illegal to bat any loose ball forward or bat any loose ball in any direction in the end zone. That's rule 941. And it's illegal to bat a backward pass in flight forward by a member of the passing team. That's 942. However, it is legal for any player eligible to touch a forward pass to bat it in any direction. That's 941. And once a forward pass is incomplete, the ball is dead. So there is no opportunity to, quote, bat a loose ball, end quote, in the case of a forward pass. Recall that kicking is an intentional striking of a ball with the knee, lower leg, or foot. That's in 2.16.1. It is illegal to kick any loose ball at any time in any direction. That's 9.44. And it's illegal to kick a forward pass, or for that matter, a ball being held for a place kick by an opponent. That's rule 944. So regarding touching the ball, there are considerable restrictions on batting a backward pass and effectively none on batting a forward pass. However, it is never legal to kick a loose ball, though an important provision in 944 is that illegally kicking a ball does not change its status. That means a backward pass or a fumble retains that status even after the ball is illegally kicked. Status of the ball can be a very important element in determining possession, live or dead ball, or scoring a safety versus having a touchback. Ball status is one of three elements that can be critical during live ball scenarios that may include change of possession, the end zone, and touching. The elements are status of the ball, responsibility for the ball's status, and initial impetus. Here's why they're important. Status refers to the reason the ball has become loose, 2-11. The possible ways to lose possession are making a legal kick, passing forward or backward, or fumbling. Responsibility refers to the player and his action of carrying or imparting impetus that causes the loose ball to be behind his goal line, H71. Impetus refers to the movement of the ball as a result of a player kicking, passing, snapping, or fumbling the ball, 872. I've emphasized in recent episodes the importance of a bedrock principle of American football that I've referred to as the durability and continuity of status, which is a concept that can be counterintuitive. For example, if the defense blocks a punt at the 10-yard line and the ball goes out of the end zone, to a casual observer, it sure looks like responsibility for the ball entering the end zone and going out of bounds there is the defensive player who blocked the punt. But of course, we know as experienced officials that the blocking did not change the status of the ball, which is that it was a legal kick. The punter is held responsible for the ball going into and out of the end zone, and so a safety results. Is that not massively counterintuitive? Not in American football, 
where ball status is as persistent as record heat was this summer in Texas. The point is that when a ball is loose, determining responsibility can be elusive if you're not fully conversive with the provisions of 872 subsections B and C. Initial impetus may change if a loose ball is batted after it hits the ground or after it is kicked, but a loose ball retains its original status even when there is new impetus. That's in 872C. If the ball is loose from a muffed snap, for example, its status is still a backward pass, even if new impetus has been imparted. Comparison element eight, potential fouls. Perhaps the principal significant difference to note for backward and forward passes about the potential for fouls is that the neutral zone is not a factor for backward passes, but it is a major factor for forward passes. The potential fouls during a backward pass are essentially the same ones that could occur during any loose ball interval. Such fouls would, of course, include illegal batting and illegal kicking, plus the sorts of blocking and holding fouls during the loose ball segment of a running play, and play-specific fouls, such as kick-catch interference that could occur anywhere on the field without regard to a neutral zone. The enforcement spot for fouls while the ball is loose is typically based on basic spot principles, which means determining the spot where the related run ended and applying the three-in-one principle, as outlined in 10.2.2.D, especially subsection 1 concerning running plays and subsection 2 when a run ends in the end zone after a change of possession. Subsection 1 provides that when a related run ends behind the neutral zone, the basic spot is the previous spot. When it ends beyond the neutral zone, or there is no neutral zone during the related run, the basic spot is the end of the run. Subsection 2 provides that when related runs end in the end zone after a change of possession, penalties are enforced from the succeeding spot or the goal line, depending on the circumstances. The potential fouls during forward passes, however, are closely tied to whether a pass does or doesn't cross the neutral zone and to whether a potential illegal act occurred behind or beyond the neutral zone. Concerning passes that don't cross the neutral zone, Team A eligibility rules still apply but not rules regarding ineligibles downfield or downfield blocking. Team B rules regarding roughing the passer or a player in a passing posture still apply, but not rules regarding pass interference. Concerning the location of illegal acts, Team A may not throw a forward pass from beyond the neutral zone, and restrictions are in place on linemen moving forward and Team A players blocking downfield. 
Team B roughing rules still apply, and pass interference rules apply as well. Rules regarding intentional grounding can also be tied to whether a forward pass lands behind or beyond the neutral zone extended. The basic spot for fouls that occur during a legal forward pass play is the previous spot, covered in 10-2-2-E, but there are important exceptions. Team B 15-yard fouls during the legal forward pass play segment of a down are enforced from the end of the last run if that run ends beyond the neutral zone and there is no change of possession during the down. Fouls by Team A behind the neutral zone are not covered by the basic spot principle. This embedded exception is in 10.2.2a, which explicitly specifies previous spot, not basic spot, enforcement. However, there is an explicit exception to this embedded exception. If Team A's foul occurs in its end zone, the penalty is a safety. There is a final complicating twist to penalty enforcement for fouls during backward and forward pass play segments during a down. We must know the result of the play if a forward pass is incomplete. Well, that's easy, you say. Everyone knows that after an incomplete pass, the ball comes back to the previous spot. That's true, but what about in cases when the forward pass is illegal? Well, first, let's review the eight ways a forward pass can be illegal. One, if thrown by Team A when the passer's entire body is beyond the neutral zone. Two, if thrown from behind the neutral zone after the passer's entire body has been beyond the neutral zone. Three, if thrown by a Team B player. Four, if thrown by either team after a change of possession. Five, if thrown a second time. Six, if spiked to save time after the ball has hit the ground or not been spiked immediately. Seven, if thrown to save time in an area with no eligible Team A receiver. Eight, if thrown to save yardage in an area with no eligible Team A receiver, with the exception for the player who received the snap being outside the tackle box. When a legal forward pass is incomplete, it's indeed true that the ball belongs to the passing team at the previous spot. But when an illegal forward pass is incomplete, the ball belongs to the passing team at the spot of the pass, with the explicit exception that Team B declines the penalty for an illegal forward pass from the end zone in 737, then that's not the case. The enforcement spot for all eight varieties of illegal forward passes is the spot of the foul, which means that almost always it's the case that the spot where Team A would have the ball is the same as the spot where the penalty would be enforced with a loss of down provision. There seems to be little reason for Team B to ever decline such a penalty. But there's a twist here. The penalty for illegal forward pass types 1 to 5 includes a loss of 5 yards from the spot of the foul with a loss of down. The penalty for illegal forward pass types 6 to 8 includes only the loss of down 
at the spot of the foul. There is no yardage assessment. Would this difference affect Team B's choice? It's hard to envision a scenario in which Team B would see some advantage to declining the penalty for an illegal forward pass. I can't help but wonder why this difference in enforcements exists. At the risk of sowing confusion, I can tell you that there used to be a difference between whether intentional grounding was committed to save time or to save yardage. Curiously, the foul for saving time included a yardage penalty, and the foul for saving yardage did not include a yardage penalty. That never made sense to me. But that peculiarity was changed many years ago. Please forget I ever mentioned this relic of the past. No such difference exists anymore. I speculate that the difference in enforcement is reasonable because types 1 to 5 of illegal forward passes involve enforcement spots that are beyond the neutral zone, so adding a loss of yardage to negate the advantage of yards gained during the play makes sense. Types 6 to 8 involve enforcement spots behind the neutral zone, so the passing team has already lost yardage, and piling on additional yardage sanction besides the loss of down, perhaps seems harsh. And as for making the reason for intentional grounding irrelevant to the penalty, I find it reasonable as well because there are clock procedure sanctions connected to grounding committed to save time, unlike grounding to save yardage. That brings me to the final comparison element, impact on the game clock. Comparison element nine, impact on the game clock. Backward passes that are caught or recovered have no impact on the game clock. Play continues as one running play segment ends and a new running play segment begins. A backward pass that goes out of bounds causes the clock to stop. That's rule 3-3-2-D-2, and the clock starts on the subsequent snap. However, it is illegal to intentionally throw the ball backwards out of bounds to conserve time. That's in 7-2-1. The penalty is a loss of down with no yardage sanction, but there is an additional sanction. Essentially, another embedded exception in 3-3-2-E-14 that says that the clock will start on the referee signal when, quote, an illegal pass is thrown to conserve time, end quote. The provision in subsection 14 makes no distinction between backward and forward passes. So any illegal pass thrown for the purpose of saving time carries the additional punishment of the clock starting when the referee signals the ball ready for play. But as you would expect, there are at least two exceptions even to this exception. First, Subsection F, immediately after subsection E, provides that, quote, whenever one or more incidents that cause the game clock to be started on the referee signal occur in conjunction with 
any that cause it to be started on the snap, it shall be started on the snap, end quote. I suppose there are scenarios in which such a circumstance could present itself. For example, suppose late in the game, Team A's punt is returned by B-18, whose fumble is then recovered by A-48. When A-48 is about to be tackled close to the sideline, but inbounds, A-48 flicks the ball backward out of bounds. He obviously didn't realize that the clock would stop even if he were tackled in bounds. Because A-48's run was during a legal kick play, by rule, the clock must start on the snap even though Team A still possesses the ball. That's a pretty far-fetched scenario for sure, and it illustrates that the exception in 3-3-2-F is unlikely to complicate a late-game scenario with an illegal pass to save time. But there is, under one minute to play in a half, an illegal pass to conserve time situation that would most certainly require considering the explicit exception in 3-4-4-C that provides for a possible 10-second runoff. Remember that the offended team may choose whether to accept the runoff, and if the offended team chooses to do so, the fouling team may choose to use a timeout to prevent the runoff. And also remember that if a 10-second runoff is refused, the clock will indeed start on the ready signal. And finally, there's this. You may have to become a mind reader if the quarterback under duress dumps the ball off illegally. Did he commit illegal grounding to save yardage? Or did he do it to conserve time? If the quarterback is not under duress, it's a pretty good bet he's trying to conserve time. If he is under duress, it's important to consider the down and distance and the location on the field in determining intent. Fortunately, with under two minutes remaining and a half, we're instructed in 3-4-3 that when there's a foul by the team ahead in the score or when the score is tied, to ask the offended team whether it prefers we start the clock on the snap or the ready. Before the last two minutes, however, we're left to use our own best judgment. So that's it for this dyad. I think, as promised, we've found there's more to think about than meets the eye regarding the similarities and differences between forward and backward passes. I think this discussion has also illustrated the importance of recognizing embedded exceptions that are so very common throughout the rules book. Come back next week for coverage of the next dyad, False Start versus Stemming, a particularly troublesome minefield for us as defenses work ever harder to test the limits of what they can do to disrupt offensives. Remember, I'm a member of the Austin Football Officials Association. If you'd like to learn more about us, contact us. You can email us at recruiting at afoa.ws, visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org, or call us at 512-298-2987. Till next time, have a great week.